Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. On this pathological life, we have talked about the issue of data governance because data is another of the lifebloods that flow through the medical sector. Uh, But today, we're upping the ante, aren't we, Travis, and looking at data security. We're all familiar with firewalls and protecting our data and and security reviews. Uh, But, I mean, this this actually takes me back. I I used to work, uh, I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers years and years ago uh, in the IT security area. (laughs) What I realised when I was doing the research is that IT security is effectively pathology for computers because you've got viruses and worms and malware and everything like that. So it's like the only difference is we've created these ourselves. Like people have actually created programs to infect other programs, which is odd, but that's Mm. what we do. And so what we had a month or so ago was a pathology informatics workshop with the with the RCPA. And we had a presentation by Derek Holshauser, who's a chief informatics officer with the RCPA and QAP. So I wanted to do this to look at where we are with health security, uh, uh, you know, what breaches have happened and what we learn from this. It was actually in the uh, September 2020, we have the first ever ransomware death associated with uh, healthcare. And this happened in Germany, and it was Dusseldorf uh, University Clinic. On a Thursday night, uh, the hospital system got completely shut down. Uh, they were unable to access it. The, all the operations had to be postponed. All the patients in ED had to be transferred away. Uh, one particular patient, who was a, a woman... Uh, who has had a life-threatening condition, was transferred uh, and ended up dying uh, about an hour later. So this is actually the first case that we have where an attack has led directly, Hmm. that we know of, to a death. And what happened was 30 servers were affected. Now, there was no ransom demanded, uh, but there was a note found on one of the affected servers uh, but this was directed to Heinrich Hein University that just said, get, get in touch. But there was no list of demands. Now, police were able to locate uh, and, and contact the perpetrators uh, and notify them that they had actually missed their target and hit a hospital. And the attackers dr- dropped the extortion attempt, provided a, a decryption key, and then they ended up losing contact what happened with this was a it was a vulnerability that the hackers exploited, which was widely used to commercial add-on software. Then there was a lot of discussion about lawmakers because this isn't covered by law as to you know someone accidentally, you know, putting ransomware. And so there was this discussion about negligent homicide, uh, you know, associated. Now I'm not sure what's come of that. Uh, but it's an interesting discussion to be have going forward. Interesting indeed with this topic, as we'll hear with one of our guests later on, John Stronner, in a situation he describes in a hospital, I see there's a perfect storm here with data security and health because it's a high-trust environment. When you're in, you're expecting everyone's on the same side. 
Hence, um, as he'll say in some of his stories, you know, there is lax approach to security because the goodwill makes us ignorant of the nefarious characters out there who would do harm. And so... That, to me, that is a vulnerability. And thank goodness, in this case, there was some heart shown on the part of the hackers. There was, but that's just by ran, by chance. Let and and so here's the thing. And, and health data is on health data and health envir- health IT environments are very attractive because of that trust. You have sensitive data that is timely, mm. needs to have time because it's all time sensitive, and it's very private. So, you know, if you have a lax approach to that, then it could be a really soft, easy target. And that's the problem. See, we we have the biggest health data breach happened in January of 2015. This was with Anthem Blue Cross, which is a private uh, US healthcare insurance agency. They ended up getting hacked. The, the attackers got names, date of birth, home address, social security numbers, of around 78 million of their users and some not even their members and some were not even members. Now, this was on a list, a top 10 list, and I can tell you the number 10 had only 3.5 million users affected. So this is high stakes mm. in what could be leaked out or lost. And not only that, there are techniques that they use. So once they've locked it down, they can turn around and then just say, this is sensitive data, do you want it back? And if they just restore it, they can do that. But then they can start to leak out private information so they can still extort money that way. So, yes, it's one of those ones that you sit there and go, it's not until you start to put the threads together that you realise how sensitive that information can be. You're suggesting, aren't you, that, we should read the privacy policy uh, on websites and service off. Uh, well, that's a, everyone ticks the sort of like you know iTunes kind of yes. kind of thing. But look, it's again, this is data that we're not thinking about much, mm. and we inherently trust the healthcare system. It, it is a challenge. I wonder if the analogy that works here of the way many of us, and I've done it lots, just tick that. Yeah, yeah. Do we agree to the? Yeah, yeah. Just tick. Whether that's like leaving your house unlocked or your car unlocked, which many of us who are old enough remember was the way in the 60s and 70s. It's it's hard because the, the challenge with healthcare is, well, what's the alternative? Mm. And so you almost, yes, you know, you put an app on, you sit there and go, yes, I'm happy to, you know, put that information. That, again, we'll cover in, in future. But it's one of those ones where there is almost no alternative when you're going, when you're sick and unwell and turn into a hospital. So that's also, we have to go to hospital when we're unwell. What are we trusting? We, we, we don't have an alternative. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, we, we're all familiar with what we call phishing scams. Now it's phishing with PH. Uh, and this is a scam where people try and actually get your information by saying, hi, you send you an email or even phone call and say, hi, I'm from a you know, government institution. Can you please tell us your name, date of birth, what your, you know, information is? This is called a phishing scam. You know, emails actually, you know, send it out and say, you need to change your password, put in your username, go to this link. And that's them trying to get your username password so that then they can access the system. Uh, There is, you know, it's called spear phishing. 
which is where they target a really high-valued user. And this, the example of this is 2016 with uh, John D. Podesta, who was Secretary Hillary Clinton's campaign manager for the election. And he got fished because they said, change your password. And then that got their access to his whole uh, emails mm-hmm. with as well with the DNC server at that time that it was also hacked by Russians. Uh, and it all came out and affected the election. So that was part of a phishing scam that tried to get access to emails and then cause problems. We've got examples of malware. Now, malware, again, sounds like it's malicious software. Uh, And as I say, the, the thing about computers is sometimes I don't know why people create this, but there was researchers in Israel who've created a program that can modify CT and MRI uh, scans to either give you a tumour or take one away. Wow. And so they, I guess they did it because they wanted to see if they could. And what they did was they were able to trick 99% of radiologists into believing there either was a tumour there or there wasn't. And and they reported as such. So 99% of people said there was a tumour when it wasn't, and 94% said there wasn't a tumour when there was. And so it was such a it's such an unusual way. These people even went to the length of showing that you can hack into a radiology system just by going there after hours, getting onto one of their uh, computers, and putting on a program to then cause have malicious intent or put mm. something to get access to it. So I'm not quite sure why these researchers didn't like seem to like radiology. So I'm not sure. Wow. Uh, but that's the level. So that's a malware where you can change it. And the they theorise well then if you've got someone who's had a scan like a political person, then you could give them a tumour and they could just take them out of the election because they've got some you know, really bad tumour that's there. Mm. So this is, this is a, a problem. Uh, what they talk about is the PACS system with radiology. So this is a picture archiving and communication system, which is where they keep the images. That's not often encrypted. Uh, it can be encrypted, but the problem with the hospital system is if you encrypt it, then it has to talk to software and communicate with software that might be old, uh, and it might not might have trouble. So as we know, you don't want to be having those kind of challenges in a hospital system when time is is precious. And so we have some examples of what happens when malicious content can go around the world. There's the WannaCry attacks. Oh yes, I remember of, those of 2017. Yeah. So this was a worm uh, that was. A worm, the difference between a virus and a worm, a virus is something that needs to be usually activated to to go ahead. So you click on the wrong thing and it will run the program, the virus to to enable it. A worm is pretty much self-propagating. So once it gets in, it can create copies of itself and go to other computers at the time. So that's the difference. I've never had a pathologist uh, describe <laughs> IT issues to me before. I might use you in some of my marketing workshops. It's a different oh, as I say, this, this is so close to pathology, it's, it's, it's yeah. incredible. So, I mean, this, this ended up affecting over hundreds of thousands of computers of acro- across 150 countries. Uh, it came up with a paywall that would say, if you want to unlock it, you pay to go to Bitcoin and pay this. Uh, it turned out that this this whole WannaCry attack was actually from 
well, a program created by the NSA called Eternal Blue. So they had their systems hacked or breached, and then that, that information was then uploaded onto the internet. A few weeks later, they had North... Well, we believe North Korea then used that to create this WannaCry attack. And what ended up happening was uh, Microsoft, a few months before, had said, here we've got this uh, uh, vulnerability, here's a patch. But as we know, sometimes patches take a little while for people to install. If you had Windows 7, it was vulnerable. If you had Windows 10, it was not vulnerable. Uh, because it would do an automatic upload. The problem with that was by the time you saw that the malware was there, the data was already gone. There was no evidence that the ransom would actually get the data back. And they estimated the damage between four to eight billion dollars over the, over the year. And then we also have the NotPetya uh, attacks, which uh, the best example of this is uh, Maersk, which is a Dutch shipping company around one-fifth of the world's shipping capacity, what ended up happening was computers just started to shut down. Uh, in the space of 30 minutes, uh, almost all the screens were black. In two hours, most of the company had been affected. Either the computer had been affected or they had pulled out the plug to try and stop it from happening. Turned out this was a Russian military attack that had started in the Ukraine from a small software company called Linkos. Uh, and they had actually set up this attack, and it was a mixture of two vulnerabilities. One, again, was the Eternal Blue uh, code from the, from the NSA, and it mixed a code with another one called Mimikatz, which had been done in 2011 by a French security researcher who found you could get passwords from the memory of the computer that it was on. <laughs> and so then one machine would hit another machine. But here's the, here's the thing about the NotPetya, is if eventually you found a vulnerable computer, the computer beside it may have had the, the patch to protect it, but because you could get the password from one to the next, you could have access to that computer and then shut it down as well. So it was indiscriminately destructive. It was said to be ransomware, but it wasn't because as soon as you saw it, the data was gone. They said, you know, if you want to pay, pay. Uh, but it was uh, gone by that stage. The problem with this kind of attack is it went all the way around the world and it even affected the Russian state-sponsored oil company called Rosneft. So wow. everyone got hit uh, and that's the problem. This was estimated at over $10 billion worth of damage across the world. The, uh, the shipping company, Mesk, had uh, went down for 10 days. They had to replace their uh, essentially entire system. Cost them 250 to $300 million. We had Merck, which is a pharmaceutical company. They estimated $870 million of damage. And then FedEx, $400 million. So when these attacks go on, they are devastating and usually irretrievable when we look at a, an example of ransomware where it does hit a hospital in 2016 there was the hollywood presbyterian medical center which is 434 beds they had their it system shut down by ransomware now it was reported that they said the the attackers want 3.4 million dollars it turned out to be around seventeen thousand dollars and they had to go to the atm and withdraw it and then convert it into bitcoin and then they did pay it 
and they got their systems back. Now, no one was affected, no patients were affected from, from what they understood, but that's the problem is that it worked. And so ransomware is starting to increase in popularity. Uh, and that's because it's effective. It mm. works. You can get money from it. If you make something that's just destructive, it's just destructive. But if you make a program that can say, here, let's you know, get some money from it, then that seems to be where the trend is going. And what we're finding is in the fourth quarter of 2019, healthcare ransomware attacks has increased by 350%. They aim for file servers and networks and hold it for ransom. 80 publicly reported cases of ransomware happened in the US in 2020. And this, again, various ways of getting through, but people going to websites, clicking on malicious links, email, are all ways in which this goes. And what we find is there was a paper by the Australian government that healthcare is the number one area where ransomware is going. This is a significant risk, and this is something that we need to be aware of and needs to be addressed before we have a problem. Thank you very much for that. We have two guests coming up to take this even further. If you would like to hear those interviews, please send $2,000 worth of Bitcoin to the Dr. Travis Brown, Steve Davis lunch account, and we'll put the details in the show. No, I'm only... We'll be back in just a moment. We're continuing our conversation now about IT security, especially in the realm of health data, and we have a special guest joining us on this pathological life. His name is John Stronner. He is a seasoned technology and data security professional, more than 35 years experience in the field, and he's worked with some of the world's most recognisable healthcare and academic companies. John actually started um, his UK-managed security practice back in 1998, recently moved to Australia, and he came here to South Australia. He bought the Adelaidean technology company Loftus. And he continues to hold business interests in both Europe and North America, as well as here in Australia, consults to organisations around the globe on technology and data security. And just for good measure, he's a certified data protection officer and acts for a number of large logistics and brand management organisations in how to keep their data safe and how to stay legally compliant with differing global data management standards. So, John, I think you're the perfect person for us to have a chat with. That's perfect, Stephen. Thank you very much for that wonderful intro. <laughs> Not at all. Um, now, John, you had an experience where you had to go to an emergency department and found an example of what we're discussing on this podcast. Can you take us through that story? Absolutely. Yes, it's quite strange, really. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, my wife, uh, in an effort to uh, keep her fitness up, took a little bit of a tumble um, when she was out jogging. Uh, she bashed her head. And so we went to the local ED uh, to get her checked out, just just precautionary. Uh, but of course, we want to be safe than sorry. We ended up going into one of the booths uh, for a CT scan to have a you know check on her neck. Um, and while we were there waiting for the clinicians to sort themselves out, I'm a bit of a, a nosy dog, at heart, and I had to look around and saw the clinician's uh, computer in the corner. Uh, it was the normal kind of mess of desks and paper everywhere. And, and, but one of the things that struck me most 
prolifically was the the neon pink uh, post-it note uh, that was square, front and center, middle of the screen, and just at the bottom saying, uh, password is radiology, username is radiology, uh, and then in bold letters underneath it, it said, please do not change this password. It will prevent your colleagues from using this machine. Oh, my uh, God. And it kind of struck me. Okay, clearly, we had to go through with the process and have our data captured and, uh, you know, our, our photographs taken. Um, but uh, I, I, it did give me a wry smile. I, I can't believe that on two counts. One, the password written and pasted on the monitor, and two, the password itself. Absolutely incredible, isn't it? Uh, but it but it represents so much about data security and and, uh, and the problems that we're, we're faced with at the minute. Uh, there's a tendency to focus on single outcome goals. What's the quickest, most expedient manner in which to get the job done, especially when you're under pressure like a, an ED ward or a radiology. Yeah. Um, but it also represents why the human factor is perhaps the hardest thing to overcome when it comes to uh, to education. We've all gone to the park and, and we've seen the, the neatly laid paths laid out by the council uh, only to discover a, a dirt track uh, cutting across it because we have this tendency to take the shortest route to, to look for the, uh, for the shortcut. Well, after the, your ED story, let's just take back a step back and, and have a broader look. What is your assessment of the current status of healthcare IT security? Well, as a real general mixed bag, it's fair to say that private practice tend to be uh, excelling or at least very progressive in this respect. Um, they, they have a quite a, a progressive uh, feel to them. They know that their reputation uh, is key to this. They know that people have a choice uh, when it comes to uh, attending one of their departments or offices or not. Um, whilst uh, it's fair to say, uh, and it's difficult to be critical because we all understand the pressures they're under, particularly at the moment, but the public sector tends to uh, languish a little bit further behind. Uh, the budgets are, are typically more stretched, but also their focus and the training regimes and things of that nature tend to be slightly behind when it comes to uh, the public sector, uh, the private sector, rather. So you could say that there were there were poles apart, and, and you can understand why um, clinical-led departments and often people at the tops of hospitals are uh, from clinical backgrounds. They're, they're going to look at it and they're going to say, "Oh, there's two hundred thousand dollars for a uh, for an ED bed, or I'm going to spend that money on thirty laptops." What what is the most defendable position? from the public spending uh, scrutiny. Uh, and, and of course, you can understand that the bed would be probably top. Let's look at the, the sector itself, the healthcare IT security sector. What are the strengths? What are the strengths that we can actually look to and play upon? The strengths are clear that they're going to have to get better to understand and address their flaws and their technology. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're helping organisations protect their brand and their reputation. And, and nobody really wants to be on the front for the advertiser with a massive outage caused by ransomware. And no one wants to stand in front of the board and, or have to explain why their system got breached. In this case, um, prevention is, is way, way better than, than cure. And they're also protecting their customers from harm too. Um, information stolen from one system, such as a, an email address and, and passwords, are, are typically and very routinely checked against other systems to see if you've used the same details. And, and, and let's be honest, Steve, um, who hasn't reused the same password in, on at least half a dozen other 
uh, platforms. If you're asking me directly, I will say that back in the early days, yes, I did. It's been close to a decade now where I haven't, for whatever reason, uh, and using a password safe has made that possible to happen. So, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I can... Well, good for you. <laughs> I'm impressed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the big one that is making headlines, uh, increasing reports of ransomware attacks. I mean, you alluded to them just before where a hacker comes into an IT system and they take control of it, demand a ransom be paid for it to be unlocked. And if you can give me the name of that ED, uh, I can probably do that now because I know the username and password. This is <laughs> this is the, the danger. Do you think this trend is going to continue? Is it going to ramp up even? Is, is there more sinister stuff coming down the pipeline? Oh, yeah. well, of course, uh, absolutely there is. Um, it would be irresponsible, of course, for me to provide you with the details of <laughs> the, yeah, um, the ED ward. Uh, but in, in terms of the, the trajectory for, for ransomware, um, it, it's definitely on the rise. It will continue to be so for as long as I can see. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that um, the ransomware itself is there to demand to unlock your system. Uh, and perhaps a year or, or more ago, that was certainly the case, but, but ransomware now typically duplicates your um, your data onto the cloud and then encrypts it on yours. So you have to pay, you're saying, to un encrypt your data. That's not really the case these days. It's probably more about the fact that um, you're, you're paying so that they don't release their copy uh, of your data onto the web. So there's a bit of an incentive Clearly, what's happened is a level of education has taken place where people um, understand the need for backups and remedial action and are able to get back online and working. Um, but of course, you can't get access to their copy. And, and so the incentive to pay to pay the ransom is still there and still very prevalent. Um, where to next? Uh, actually, I, I came across a, a fantastic article in, in Nature Biotechnology. Now, from an IT guy, you know, 35 years, I, I never once thought that my career would require me to to, to read Nature magazine. Um, but there was this piece uh, a couple of months ago called Cyber Biosecurity, Remote DNA Injection Threat in Synthetic Biology. It's effectively about taking over um, a biologist's computer uh, and replacing their output, the subsets and, and DNA sequencing that they're working with to produce a, a, a malformed strain of the DNA that they're working with. Um, and if you're working on, say, personalized genetic therapies, altering that clearly has some, some massive and, and catastrophic outcomes for the patient. So that's uh, probably going to put a chill down uh, many biologists' spine, uh, just thinking about that. Closer to home and, and more in the immediate, uh, what's happening at the moment is, is we've got the telehealth appointments. Clearly, with, with COVID-19, and, and I hate using that word, and I promised myself I would try and not use it as much as possible, uh, but with telehealth appointments, there's a, a huge amount of spam, uh, phishing and smishing uh, attacks. Um, so typically, the, the focus of these people are, are they're highly emotional, highly vulnerable people, uh, and so they are likely to um, respond. If, you're, if your doctor sends you a, an email to say, uh, please contact the surgery on this number, or we need to conduct the tests at 30 bucks. Here's the details. You're likely to try and respond to it simply because of the heightened awareness of, of healthcare at the moment. Um, what that's going to lead on to in the future, who knows? 
Uh, but there's certainly likely to be more and more um, healthcare information pervade and, and sold onto the dark web. And then who's going to buy that? Well, it's going to be unscrupulous people. It's going to be people that are building up profiles of you as an individual um, and perhaps even looking at uh, matching that data to the healthcare and insurance fees in the future. It's, uh, it's, it's a difficult and unpalatable subject, but uh, hmm. uh, you can uh, underestimate the, uh, the, the economics of this. And if that wasn't okay. sobering enough, in our previous discussion, um, you actually mentioned that hackers had targeted the, the COVID vaccine producers. Can you tell us more about that? What was their motive there, do you think? Oh, money. Money, 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 uh, and lots of it. Um, the main focus of this, and, and this is a pretty recent thing. In fact, it was it was only released by IBM last Thursday, so so the third of December. It was to do with the essentially they're targeting uh, an organisation called the Gavi Alliance, uh, G A V I, and that's a, that's a practice of Bill Gates' initiative to bring together organisations in healthcare and, and healthcare distribution um, to uh, distribute vaccines. Uh, and as we know from the COVID uh, vaccines, they're, they're having to be kept and stored and transported in, in incredibly uh, cold environments, you know, minus 80, minus 70 degrees. Um, so this uh, this alliance is called the Cold Chain Equipment Optimization Platform. Um, and effectively, what they're trying to do is they're, they're, it's a smashing grab. They want to get in. They want to disrupt these people. They know they're under time pressure. They know that there's no time for them to be messing about, negotiating a lower fee. They want to get in, make their ransom demand, get out, spend their ill-gotten gains. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. If we're looking to work out what we should be paying in the, the health sector to try and deal with this, how many resources are dedicated to IT security in, in other sectors? Well, of course, it all depends on the size of your organisation itself. But uh, if I was to pluck some some figures from... Uh, the powers that be, people like uh, IDC, uh, International Data Corp, uh, they suggest between 7 and 10% of your IT budget annually is to be spent solely on, on IT security. The Gartner, a uh, world-renowned uh, organization, uh, they forecast that our industry, the cybersecurity industry, is likely to reach $170 billion US dollars by 2022. And, and so you can understand there really is quite a a huge uh, appetite for this uh, and a, a burgeoning market. But the reality, though, is that whatever the size of budget that you have, it's pretty easy uh, to get started with uh, with what you need to do to get yourself on the right side, uh, your, your protocols and, and procedures. Uh, we're looking at maybe mitigations of 85 to 90 percent on some very, very small things, um, two-factor authentication, password management, you mentioned yourself that you have a password manager. So all of these things and, and a few smaller tweaks uh, can often represent a, a huge mitigation of the risk. And, and then that all that leads is to, to try and capture the remaining 10%. If we go back to the beginning, you mentioned that fluorescent pink post-it note yeah. on the ED computer with the username and password. Um, you do rem remind me that many, many years ago I read that most data breaches are actually internal, and I, I think the figure is something around 59% of them. So how does a place like a hospital uh, protect itself against something like this? And I'm guessing not using 
fluorescent pink post-it notes is probably a good way to start. <laughs> post-it notes should be banned, uh, as far as I can say. If it's not stuck to your screen, invariably it's in the top right-hand corner of your drawer. If yes. you send the keyboard over, it's, uh, it's stuck to there. So we all know the places. But really, what we're looking at is um, performing data breach impact assessment. So it's, it's, it sounds very long and complex, but it is little more than risk analysis. You're just looking at where you, where's your data stored, where's your data stored? Who has access to it? And is that appropriate? When was the last time you audited that to see if those individuals or those groups of individuals are still, is it still necessary for them to access that? What would happen if you lost it or stole it? What would be the, the economic and the reputational outcomes of that loss? Uh, and that gives you a bit of an order in which to start. So you look at the, the highest risk, higher probability, and then you go down to high risk, low probability, low risk, high probability. Uh, so it's, you know, it's likely to occur, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, and then finally, low risk, low probability. And ranking your data holdings and procedures in that manner gives you a, a fantastic starting point. All right. Let's bring this home, John with something perhaps aspirational to look at. Uh, with your experience, you know, 35 plus years, what's an example of an organization uh, that has a strong uh, rigor around its IT security? And, and is there a model that healthcare could use to improve their systems? Absolutely. Um, well, I would certainly steer clear of any banking or government organizations as a, as a model uh, for, for data management and data security. Um, I would look maybe to the commercial sector, uh, places like uh, financial institutions, um, commercial financial institutions would be the better one because they inherently understand the value of the information they're capturing. They understand what would happen if that was disclosed, both as a, a reputational level and a, an economic level. Um, and they understand also if their competitors were to receive uh, copies of that information. So. They have this inherent understanding and they understand that in the event of their disclosure, somebody is going to um, walk away from them. They're going to move to a competitor. They're going to ch change that organization. So, um, yeah, the, the, I would say that they would probably be representative of good uh, cyber and, and data hygiene. John Stroner, thanks for joining us on This Pathological Life. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your invite, Steve. As we move further into this topic of data security, especially around medical and, and GP practices, uh, we have a special guest joining us. Uh, it's Dr. Nick Tellis. He's a specialist GP. He's also a practice owner at Partridge GP, and they supply services and facilities to other GPs. So when we're talking to him, we're talking with his vision over a number of practices as well. Nick, thanks for taking time out to join us. No problems at all. Thank you for having me. Before we get into some specifics that you might be able to share uh, to other GP practice owners and, and practicing GPs, just your involvement and interaction between the work you do at Partridge GP and this sphere, what sort of journey has that been along the way for you? So I think I've always said that uh, good business is good medicine uh, or good medicine is good business, but 
even though good medicine is a prerequisite for good business, in my opinion, because I'm, I'm not interested in any sort of business that's medical that doesn't involve good medicine, it's not the totality of good business. And I think you need to run a good business in the modern world. And if your data security and managing health data, system security, all of these things are not top notch, then you're going to suffer. And as an individual GP, the managing of health data starts with you, but it's very hard to play an A game with Z players. And so you've got to manage that health data from acquisition to storage to usage and everything in between. That little reference you made to not being able to play an A game with Z players, it would suggest that there's some money that has to be put where the mouth is. So let's look at perhaps quantifying the approach to IT resources. If, if someone's either setting up a new GP practice or reviewing the current operations what sort of IT resources should they really be making sure they've got? I think a base level of knowledge would be firstly to acquaint yourself with the RACGP guidelines on data safety and health data management. I think AgPAL is another place to go, the uh, accreditation company. They also have various protocols for this. And looking at how APRA and the medical board look at this sort of situation is important. I think as a practice owner, not only do you need to look after your yourself, but you also have to look after yourself and the people who are paying you money, so other GPs, for the services and facilities that you provide them. There's an aspect you brought into that, uh, Nick, that is, is interesting. It comes from my business world. I'm a big fan of Stephen Covey and his seven mm. habits of highly effective people. And one of them is to begin with the end in mind. And correct me if I'm wrong, but part of your reasoning there was to think about where what could the end point be of something not going right with security, either impacting a, a, a patient and or some legal action or, or some of the official bodies coming down upon you. Is that a good way to start to, to bring home the consequences of not paying enough attention to data security? Definitely. I think if we go back to another sort of doyen of the business writing, Michael Gerber in the e-myth, he talked about starting with a business of one and moving to a business of many. So if you look at an individual practitioner, we're starting with a business of one. So as a, an individual GP, you need to collect health data properly. You do that in the format of a consultation or through a secure gateway. You, you have that data and you look after it. You don't write it on bits of paper, have it sitting in your car. Uh, I think one famous case in Adelaide, blowing along the beach. That's that's not a winning, a winning strategy. And if you collect good data, use it well, safeguard it, make sure it's not going places that it shouldn't. And then you can scale that as you either take part in a practice or engage a practice to provide you with services or facilities or build your own practice, you can then scale those good habits into enterprise-level habits. Could we specify a habit in particular? Because we mentioned not writing things down on bits of paper. Um, what's what's a best practice or two for a GP to uh, embody in, in securing their notes, for example? I think partnering with a great practice such that you've got good medical software and you're using it and you're using it properly. There's no point in having a fantastic bit of medical software where you can type all this stuff into if you don't use it. 
um, you know, garbage in, garbage out, or, or no notes is is nothing. So if the if the stuff is in the software, then that's useful. Just to give you an example, many moons ago, I was in uh, doing a job of work, and the practice and the practitioners were providing services to related people. There wasn't that distance. And of course, when they were providing services to related people, they couldn't really put the notes on the computer. So there was a secret second set of notes in a secret place in the practice. That's not secure. The cleaners could have read it. That maybe they did. I don't know. It's all ancient history now. Nothing's come of it. But that is not a, a workable solution. So I think adhering to some protocols, ensuring that things are private. You know, if you're doing in, in this era of telehealth, if you're having a telephonic conversation with a patient, do it in an area where you're not going to be overheard. You don't really want your your details being broadcast to everyone in the cafe as as your STD results, your pathology results are read live. So good habits, I think, start with the individual and, and scale up to the enterprise. So far, we've been talking about the responsibilities of GPs setting up their practice correctly to maintain data security within their internal systems. But what happens when a patient says, hey, could you just text me uh, some results? Can you email me some results? Because we know that is a potential leakage area where people can snoop. Now, if you'd asked me that question 12 months ago, I would have quoted from the protocols as holy writ and said, thou shalt not use email. It's it's equivalent to putting your sensitive data on the back of a postcard and sending it through the, the post office. Mm-hmm. However, COVID has done a Miley Cyrus and gone through this like a wrecking ball. And while security is great, best is the enemy of good. And so I invite patients specifically to offer them sacrificing a bit of security for a bit of speed, not literal speed, because you know that's that's a controlled drug. But <laughs> if, if you come and see me, or we're doing a, a telephonic consultation, and you say to me, "Look, Nick, um, I, I, I just like a record of this, or I would like you to email me my results," and I say, "Look, you know, Simon, um, Steve, even if I get your name right, that's a major uh, data leak just there." <laughs> I say, "Look, I can email it to you." But that's not a secure method of communication. So there is a potential that that can be read. or And, and they'll say to me, look, you know what? Well, that's that's a thing. Don't email it to me. Just print it out. I'll pick it up from the, the surgery. Or, look, I'm not too fast. It's all good. Just email it to me anyway. And I record that in the system and, and we move on from there. Uh, text, as I understand it, as a non-technical person, it's far harder to send a text to the wrong person than it is to send an email to the wrong person. And a text, if it goes to the wrong person, it only goes to one wrong person. But again, the contents of your email and texts shouldn't be sufficiently detailed that someone could wage identity fraud with them. Mm. So just a bit of mindful use of the technology, both for patients and doctors. And I think if patients have their own regular GP and their own regular GP practice, they can build those systems between them such that they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they come in and see a doctor. All right. Well, let's leave with something to ponder. If, if a GP is listening or a GP practice manager is listening, um, 
two questions uh, in one. I'll let you uh, riff as you wish. I know having worked with Dr. Travis Brown now here on this ClinPath podcast for so long, a pathologist is able to use some sort of test to to get a reaction from something to to see if it's good or bad or, or measure something. So I'd like to firstly ask, is there something that GP or GP owner could do to test their system to see if it's right or if there's a flaw to give it a bit of a pressure test, if you like? And the other thing is, what is one of the first things you'd suggest someone does in that situation after listening to this interview? The, the idea of pressure testing your systems, I, I like to go into the system and try and break it. So I send a few emails or I get on the, the system and, and just send a few messages and just see where they land up. And so you, you don't do it with a mission critical <laughs> test, but you, you pick something. So I've, I've sort of taken a photo of a bit of paper just saying hello. I've uploaded it to the system. I've put it in our results system and then I've sent it around all the places where it could be sent and then see where it ends up. And I think that allowed us to test our system. And, and then I looked at what I was looking at and then what our reception staff were looking at, what our practice manager was looking at, what our nurses were looking at. And we could, we've got a, now a very coherent system of, of management in that regard. If I was an individual GP, I would go to the practice manager of the practice where I was working and I would say, look, what's our data breach policy? Well, what are your thoughts on this? What are we doing in regard to this? You know, just let them riff on that. If they look at you blankly and sort of go, what, what's the data? I don't know what that is. That, that's, you've got an answer. If you're a practice owner, I think in the modern world, we, we used to think that if you were a smaller practice or a, a one-person gig, you probably didn't need to worry about this quite so much. I think you probably need to ask more questions and whether those questions are of your professional organisation, your practice manager, or the entities that support you, for example, your IT service provider, you need to ask these questions and get a, a flavour for the answers. And if you're not liking the answers, then you need to work further on that. And that's an investment of time, money or energy. And I guess it is, at the end of the day, an investment in shoring up our duty of care to ourselves, our staff and our patient. Well, we've come full circle. For you to provide good medicine in the modern age, data security is part of that. You you firstly can't provide a good service to the patient if, if you've got problems with, with either collecting storing or using the data and you're not going to operate a sustainable business if you're leaking data here there and everywhere you're just not going to have a business you're not going to be able to serve anyone so you know it, it's it's quite plain to me this this needs to be something at the the forefront of your mind dr nick tellis thank you for that our consultations over just see the reception on the way out and uh problems okay thanks very much thanks for having me this Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. 
Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.